Welcome to episode 705 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index, BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo. Happy anniversary. Your anniversary? Your. Our anniversary? Our anniversary. Oh, it's our anniversary. Yeah. Oh, wow. Three years today. Three years. So it's your birthday, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay. Happy birthday to you and the podcast. Yes. All right. I was thinking that maybe we would make this one free anyway, inspired by Wilco's decision to release an album for free. People pay what they want. This podcast free. Yeah. All right. Okay. So we haven't done a podcast in a couple days. We haven't done an email show in a couple weeks. So we are going to dig into the backlog of emails a little bit. Anything you want to talk about before we do that? I don't think so. Okay. All right. We've got too many good emails to answer all in one day. Derek just emailed us with a note, a follow-up to our podcast from the other day when we were talking about Ned Coletti, and you were talking about the anecdote from Molly Knight's new book, The Best Team Money Could Buy, about how Ned Coletti cried when the Giants won the World Series. Derek said, I do know that his son was working with the Giants as a scout at that time. Possibly that played a factor in him being emotional when his rival team won, mm. which is plausible. I mean, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's possible. Also, I mean, there was nothing wrong with it. I, I think we both concluded that it was yeah. an ex- extremely logical time to be emotional about the team winning, given the other factors. Yeah. So just to be clear, uh, yes, yes to this, and also no to any Ned shaming on that detail right. anyway. Would you have... Any hesitation about hiring the son of a division rival GM to be a scout for your team? Um, let me think. I'm going to imagine this. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to think about someone I know who has a son. All right. So uh, hmm. it depends how much I. It depends. I guess it's somewhat. De- yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I could see. Yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, it's a little scary. Not I mean, that not that the scout is just like there to be a secret agent or right. not so secret agent, but if it comes right down to it, <laughs> you'd think that there would be a case because his ultimate loyalty is going to be to his dad. For for one thing, it's his dad. For another thing, it's a GM of a baseball team. So worst case scenario, he he loses his job with another baseball team and gets a job with that baseball team. So it's not like he's really endangering his career, or maybe he's endangering his chances of working for a future team that is not run by his dad, but you'd think that if the dad wasn't, if he didn't respect the boundaries, if he applied a little pressure now and then, you'd think there could be some uncomfortable situations. I Yeah, I'm less worried about lack of loyalty and more just thinking I wouldn't want 
him, particularly because you figure the dad knows how to kind of manipulate his son in ways that are subtle. Uh, I would just more be worried that they're spending so much time around each other that some something might slip. Uh, you know, that certainly you could imagine uh, if the dad, for instance, uh, wanted to hack into your ground control database uh, mm-hmm. and you've left your, uh, your password on a sticky note uh, in your office at home and the dad comes over to, um, you know, deliver a, a, a chair that he fixed for you or something and sort of mm-hmm. slips in and can find your password. I mean, I, I would not be worried that the kid was going to purposefully hurt the team. I would be worried that there are vulnerabilities, uh, particularly accidental vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And Charlie sent a follow-up to an earlier episode. You considered in episode 702 whether there had been another scenario in which a manager won a battle with the front office and concluded that such an occurrence was ahistorical. This is when we were talking about Socha versus DePoto. While I concur that this is certainly rare, given, I suppose, the relative expertise present in front offices as opposed to expertise among the baseball men typically found in field manager positions, I submit the Tony La Russa versus Colby Rasmus debacle that took place during the St. Louis Cardinals 2011 championship run could fit this mold. To refresh your memory, Rasmus was a highly touted prospect who was never really given a shot under LaRusso, and the two had quite public disdain for one another, despite the front office's dedication to Rasmus, which I thought was apparent given his continued presence on the 25-man roster. LaRusso refused to play him, and he was eventually traded. This spat may be overlooked for a number of reasons, that the trade brought back talent that contributed to the World Series victory, that John Jay developed into a perfectly serviceable, if somewhat frustrating, center fielder, and that Rasmus never really became the player that his prospect status anticipated. I'm curious to hear your opinion on this matter. Going back to the the son, the hiring son, people just like to talk, and if you ask people a question, they ha- they actually have a hard time not answering it. They have a hard time saying, I'm not going to answer that. Some people are good at it, but they're not great at it. Most people aren't great at it, and particularly... Like, I don't know, if, if you just sort of, like, have you ever heard that thing where if you ask for something and uh, you give a reason for why you're asking, people have a hard time mm-hmm. saying no? So, like, if you go, yeah. uh, can I cut in line because I want to get there sooner? Like, just right. that, just saying because I want to. Yeah. Have you heard that? Where did we hear yeah. that? Did we hear that together? Was that like a, that must have been like a gist thing or something. Yeah, I think you've you've mentioned it on the show before. I think so, I heard it from you. So I, it's just that I wouldn't want anybody being that familiar with my employees, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Sure. La Russa. La Russa and Rasmus. Yeah. Yeah. It fits. And Alex asked for a clarification on whether Brett Gardner's selection to the final vote in the All-Star game qualifies as him being selected for an All-Star yeah. game and therefore becoming or, or no longer being eligible for the honor of being the best player to never have been selected to an all-star game or get an MVP vote. Uh, well, it, being the final vote is not an all-star appearance. However, he did make the team, right? Was he? I don't know if he was voted in or if he was a replacement after the fact. Uh, yeah, well... But were, he was on the team. Yeah. And uh, so Brett Gardner is off the list. Clearly the biggest threat to Nick Markakis' crown was Brett Gardner. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, now it's... Uh, it's much clearer. Uh, so yeah, Gardner's off the list. You think Gardner? Gardner will probably also get an MVP vote or two this year. Yeah, he, uh, that he very well might. Okay, so 
questions. Um, Chris asked, some people like to complain about how much MLB players get paid despite having a five-month offseason, thereby implying that they don't work that much. However, when considering that during the season they work six to seven days a week with no vacation, and I'd imagine even before considering flights between cities, they're at the park for more than eight hours on game days, furthermore, they are expected to work out in the offseason to get in the best shape of their life, rebuild their swing, learn a new pitch, etc. My question is this. How much does the average ball player work over the course of an entire year when accounting for the season and offseason? You have to decide what work is because uh, it they spend so much more time doing job-related things than, than we do, I would think. However, a huge portion of that time is spent uh, sitting in a clubhouse playing Clash of Clans or text messaging ladies because uh, there's a, just so much downtime, so much time that they're not really, I think, expected to be doing anything. Like, like if they're on a flight from uh, Toronto to, to Miami, that's that's work, right? Yeah, you're yeah you're you're going somewhere for your employer. You're away from your home and your family. Yeah, you would if you were in some other business, you would expense that trip, or you would mark it down somewhere on a log of hours that you traveled or worked or something. So, yeah. Generally speaking, yeah. Generally speaking, they get to a game about five five and a half hours before the game starts. And they, of course, uh, play the game, so that's three-plus three hours. Yeah. And then they, they're usually there for a, a little bit longer. And then that doesn't include uh, anything they might do after the game, like mm-hmm. uh, them work out a lot. They, of course, there are a lot of those flights, like I just described, from Toronto, et cetera. And this is media. Media, yeah. And this is basically seven, you know, six and a half days a week for six months. So uh, no, you know, no weekends, really. And, um, so I, I don't know, do we want to do math? Is this a situation to do math? It is probably the, I'm also an average person with a 40 hour a week job and a couple of weeks of vacation is 2000 hours a, a year of uh-huh. work, I suppose. So I guess we should figure out how much more a player works. So if it's, so what's the, so the season is. Well, it depends. So let's say that you don't make the playoffs. So it's still a seven-month season because spring training. Yeah, yeah, almost eight now, right? Yeah, right, closer to eight probably. Uh-huh. And so during each of those months, you've got a four weeks, and in each of those weeks, you've got you've probably got six and a half work days or something. Well, you're if we're only counting four weeks uh, in a month. Oh well, yeah, that's true. That's that's twenty eight. So let's just consider it four weeks of seven days a week, and then we'll we'll just we'll throw the extra days aside. Okay. For simplicity, so we've got we've got each week is seven days, and I'm saying eleven hours a day. Okay. And again, this is not necessarily lawyer hours where you're, um, you know, you're working. You have to every 12 minutes or whatever you bill in 12 minute increments. And so you have to account for all 12, you know, all 80 hours that you're billing. I mean, there is, like I said, there is a lot of time in which they are 23 year olds doing 23 year old stuff. And you, it doesn't look like work other than the fact that they are compelled to be there. Mm -hmm. Right now there's other things that are like, like hard work, right? Like 
they have to go in front of people who are yelling things at them and perform extremely difficult tasks uh, flawlessly. So that's work, hard yeah, work. Sure, but much, much I mean, more if we're pressure. Talking, if we're just talking time, I'm I'm willing to go eleven point three hours a day. Not okay. not not counting travel. And so okay. Then let's, let's so eleven point three times twenty eight for uh for a month times seven and a half months is twenty three hundred seventy three hours so we're already over the typical office workers yearly hours and we There's haven't also, even yeah. counted travel or we haven't counted travel and i'm gonna say i'm gonna say two and a half hours a week on travel on on average for travel so that's another 10 hours a month uh, although only for six months. So mm. add another 60 hours. Okay. Okay. And then we've got, you might have postseason, and then you, so you're at 20, 2,400. You're already, right, like you said, you're already at 2,400, and then there's the five months that they spend staying elite athletes mm-hmm. and doing various things that are job-related. Yeah. Now, so... do we, again, like, do we count working out, though? I mean, the, lots of 24-year-olds work out. Like, people spend hours in the gym as a hobby, mm-hmm. right? I mean, is it required to work out, I guess? I mean, I, like, I remember when I, I, was, uh, I was on a ride-along with cops once, and, uh, and they, we, I was talking about their schedule, their work schedule, and they come in, and they work out. And I remember trying to, like, I wasn't sure whether that's cheating or not. Like, you work out because, like, you're a dude, and, like, a lot of dudes really love working out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they would say, well, you know, I have to be in shape or I can't, uh, you know, I can't do my job. And that's true too. It's like, Ben, is it work when you watch baseball? Sometimes. Yes. Is it yeah. always, yes, is it yeah. always work when you watch baseball though? If I mean, there a, are not Saturdays. a pleasant work. It's one of the more pleasant types of work. Right. Was it work when I read Molly Knight's book? It didn't yeah, feel didn't like, sound work. like it was. No, it didn't feel like work. It was enjoyable. I would have done it if my job were accountant, mm-hmm. and yet my job is not accountant, and I probably could claim that as work if I wanted to. I don't know though. I don't know if that. I don't know that my boss would consider that work. Yeah, it's difficult to say. So well, I mean, does it matter? It's partial work if you if you have to go to the gym or because if, if you don't have a job that requires you to go to the gym, then you might still feel bad if you didn't do it if you're in the habit of doing it you might feel down about it or something but you don't feel that pressure to perform i don't think you feel the same sense of obligation that you would if you have to get naked in a locker room every day and then try to hit baseballs <laughs> so i think i think it's partial i think it's half time half rate work uh-huh. if when gabe kapler was making some sort of like health smoothie for himself uh-huh. like did, was that work i mean being in no, good health he still does is, that is, and he, is, he doesn't right, have exactly. to do that to be a exactly. farm director exactly does sourcing smoothie ingredients count as work <laughs> that's a tough call but all right so so we're up we're we're, we're up around 2500 without factoring in off season or any of these other things so Eh, let's just what is say... the point? What is the ultimate question we're trying to ask? Are we trying to ask whether this job, because you don't get paid a lot of money 
because you're willing to do the work. You get right. paid a lot of money because your 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 skill has value. You're selling an asset, and that yes. asset, your ability to do a thing, whether it's hard or not, is irrelevant. It is completely irrelevant to the math of your salary. Nobody is going in and asking for eleven point two million dollars, and the team says we'll give you ten point four, and you go, dude, I worked seventy seven hours last <laughs> yeah. week. No matter what your hour total is, the salary divided by that that number so, is going to be way, 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 way more than right. anyone else. So, so let's, uh, let me ask you a simple question, Ben. Okay. Let's say that let's say nobody watched baseball. That baseball, you didn't get any of the glory, you didn't get any of the fame. You just your job was to watch baseball for you know like I don't know for the Russian state or whatever, and you had the exact same schedule that a major leaguer has. Uh, but you're, you're paid like a normal laborer would do it. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So you've got a major leaguers schedule in every way and you can get paid exactly what you're getting paid at Grantland. Hmm. Which job do you choose? I think I'd stick with mine. <laughs> Too much okay. travel. Now, what if, uh, have you ever had a, like a real job? Yeah. Not... Office, office jobs. Yeah. 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 Okay. Which would you choose, office job or major leaguer? So I get none of the fame and adoration. Right. There's not even there's no, the Hall of Fame doesn't even exist. Historians will not remember your name. However, you you know you do get to play baseball. You get to that your job is to hang around and tweet and text, and then every once in a while play baseball, and then uh, run and work out and be in pain. Yeah, I'd probably rather do that than any office job I've held. I think I agree with that. Now, okay. I would, uh, let's see, uh, working uh, in a movie theater in high school, mm-hmm. I would take, I would take over baseball, but the, that, I mean, I got paid like $160 a week. So <laughs> it's not like if you were paying me $160 a week to be a baseball player, I don't know what I would do, but well, it's not that different a, from all baseball players who are not major leaguers, right? Except there's that sliver of a chance that they might someday be major leaguers. Right, the median salary in the Pacific Association is literally $160 a week. It yeah. is like, actually, that is exactly what it is, like almost to the dollar. Yeah. So, yeah. But hmm. of course, yeah. Okay, so, but without that, I don't, how much, geez, how many hours do you think the average Pacific Association player works? Well, there's little they get travel. There at, they get there at about 2.30 for a night game. What time did you guys get home last night? Oh, 11.30. Okay, so you've, you're already at nine. Mm-hmm. You're already at nine hours. And then, you know, the, a lot of them work out yeah. in the mornings. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I guess baseball is worth it. Yeah. Although there's a, there is some potential upside of a payout at the end that movie theater employee doesn't really have. Right. You get to be in a book by us. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, all right. All right. Okay, so Kevin says, in talking about... All-star voting this year, many people have commented on how weak the field is for shortstops, especially in the American League. This has led to hand-wringing about the decline of the shortstop from the era of the big three. The question is why? Why has shortstop declined as an offensive position? My hastily formed hypothesis is as follows. As our understanding of defensive performance and evaluation has advanced, fewer organizations are content putting big bat mediocre glove guys at shortstop. These guys are being moved elsewhere. In the previous generation, when defense was being undervalued by many, teams were more likely to put up with below average to average defense in exchange for offense up the middle. Just an idea, it might be completely unfounded. Any thoughts? First thought is that that was 
anomalous, right, to have Alex Rodriguez, Derek Jeter, and Nomar Garciaparra come up at the same time. That was recognized as anomalous at the time. So it wasn't like that was the historical norm throughout baseball, and now we are deviating from it. That was the deviation, and now we are returning to it. So that's part of it. And then part of it is just the offensive environment being different so that the numbers from the 90s look more different from the numbers today than they would if the offensive environment hadn't changed. And I think probably Kevin is right to some extent about the defense being valued more. Although, I don't know, because A-Rod was a really good defensive shortstop, and Nomar was a fine defensive shortstop for a while, and Jeter... Say it, say it, say it. Say it. Jeter wasn't, but everyone thought he was. It wasn't like they were like, oh, I guess we can live with Jeter there because he hit so well. Jeter was winning gold gloves. Like, I guess you could say that if Jeter were coming up today, do you think if Jeter came up today and were exactly the same, would he be a shortstop? Oh, that's a really good question, Ben. Um, Goodness gracious. I... The alternative would be to move him to... Where would you move him? Where would you move was, Rookie Jeter? There was always talk of moving him to center field or something, like a Billy yeah. Hamilton kind of move. So that is that what you're suggesting the alternative is? Yeah, that seems like the most plausible. Not second base? None uh, of the, none of the problems. He's big yeah. for second base. And none of the problems that he has at shortstop would be alleviated by a move to second base. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the problem was that he couldn't chase ground balls. Yes, not that he couldn't make the throw. Right. Um, I will say center field. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say he'd still be a shortstop. Yeah. I, think... I mean, because uh, I don't know. The, uh, it's a good question. I could go either way. I don't know. The thing, cause, I mean, he made so many errors as a minor league shortstop, at least at first, and errors were bad at the time. Errors were regarded as even worse at the time, probably, than they are now. Yeah, but and you he would still th- stay there. No, because you think that a guy will cut down his errors. And, yeah. and that's probably even true. But mm-hmm. we know that you don't really improve your defense for the most part. You don't really improve your range. Like, it's mostly a straight slope downward, right? Mm hmm. And uh, I'm sure, like, there are probably, well, I don't know if there are a lot of guys who had 50 errors and whatever, but he didn't have a, did he have a lot of errors by the time he got to the majors? I mean, people talk about that year. By then. That that was low minor. That was like his first year. Right. Uh, I feel like he still made a fair amount early on, but I'm checking. I'm checking too. 22 his first year. Yeah. Which is a lot, but Mm -hmm. not. Not extreme. It's not Jose Offerman. It's, no, it's not Marcus Simeon. It's not Marcus Simeon. I'm going to see what Jose Offerman was because I remember that being a thing. Uh, Offerman made 42 his first full year. Uh-huh. And then 37 and then 35. Jeter's career high was 24. I mean, it's not shy. It's You don't look at Jeter's heirs totals and and throw up in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I don't know. Maybe center field is enough of a glamorous position that you could, because I don't. I can't imagine moving Jeter to second base just because he is. He's Jeter. He's the franchise guy, and he's 
handsome and inspiring and a high draft pick and everything. So I would guess that there'd still be some desire to leave him at a important place, but maybe maybe that would be important enough. So I don't know. I'd, I'd guess still shortstop just because it seemed like everyone still kind of thought he was a good shortstop at the end. Why, <laughs> I guess why not, wait, not? Why not third base, though? I mean, it seems like third base would be like he's got the size for third base and there's nothing it does sort of feel like moving from shortstop to second base does kind of feel like you're being put at the kids table but from shortstop to third base feels like like that's where hall of famers go that's that's what chipper jones did and mm-hmm. uh and you know, that's what matt williams did and Cal Ripken. A-Rod. yeah well much later, later. yeah but, I mean, when you move from shortstop to third base, yes, you are being told you're not a shortstop. However, you're also being told, we think you can hit like a corner man. And whereas if you go from shortstop to second base, it's like, okay, you, you're weak. You're not as strong as the other grown-ups. So the second base is where they put me when I was, like when I started, I was good enough to play shortstop, but I was tiny. Mm-hmm. And, and then I stayed tiny. And every year that I played, the lack of strength became more important than the plus fundamentals and finally i just was stuck at second because i was weak mm-hmm. well and uh, so it feels like that whereas it doesn't feel like that going to third maybe i'll write something about it it's hard to say because by the time it was widely understood that he wasn't a good shortstop he was so entrenched there that the yankees were afraid to move him not even away from shortstop but away from the second spot in the lineup which got kind of crazy in his last year have you ever uh, his war would be higher right i mean normally it's hard to say whether a guy's war would be improved by a switch because yeah. you lose positional adjustment, but maybe you gain in defensive right. rating yeah. at that position. Jeff Sullivan but wrote a, a thing about how he wasn't actually a bad defender. He was a bad defender for a shortstop. For a shortstop, yeah, exactly, which is true. Uh, however, he was so bad at shortstop by the war, the war, the war defensive metrics. Yeah, probably if he'd moved to third, uh, his career might conceivably i mean he like he trails chipper jones Mm -hmm. uh in war but i'm not sure he would if he'd been a third baseman his whole career yeah i think that's probably right okay marcus said what if i were managing a team and instructed my players to break every unwritten rule at every opportunity would this strategy significantly affect team on base percentage how long would it take for opposing teams to eventually disregard unwritten rules when playing against my team and what would those games without unwritten rules look like? That's a broad question, but let's say the the OBP question and maybe the unwritten rules being disregarded by the opponent question. Well, the you know how uh, in linear weights, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know how in linear weights, an intentional walk is worth less than a walk, yeah. and I think a walk is even worth less than a hit by pitch. Yeah. Because, uh, and that sort of seems weird because they're all one base. However, usually a opposing team, they choose when to intentionally walk you. They do it when they think it will do the least damage. And, a, mm-hmm. and to some degree, they can choose when they walk you, whereas a hit-by-pitch is usually an accident. And so it's you know, closer to a single where it happens like completely against the other team's will, usually. So if in a situation, though, where we're talking only about intentional hit-by-pitches, they would get to choose when they pay you back. There's... There's no like rule that it has to be the next time they see you come up to the plate or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, you might get your hit by pitches and get on base, but all the opposing team has to do is wait until it's you know the eighth inning of a five-run game, 
and then you know hit you in the nose and you're not going to be like woohoo we got a base runner mm-hmm. you're going to be like well that wasn't really worth it right so my guess is that as a strategic advantage it would have first off very little <laughs> very little movement yeah. second off teams would probably figure out ways to uh, ruin your life uh, that uh, shy of hitting you with pitches like they might just punch you you know like you might just get like they might just she- cheap shot you when you get to second base they might uh uh clothesline you when you're rounding the bag i don't know what they would do they might come in spikes up uh they might uh you know uh, break a pipe in your clubhouse because they Who can knows? do those things on the field without being prosecuted yeah, exactly uh, they might, uh, uh, you know, poison the team pet. I don't know what they would do. They would do something. My guess, though, is that they would, they would probably uh, not let you use that to win games for very long. Yeah. Okay. Play index. Okay. Um, play index by Baseball Reference. Mm-hmm. All right. So Chase Utley. Uh, Chase Utley, probably not going to be a Hall of Famer, right? Probably not. I wrote a thing once for the score in Canada that looked at all the reasons guys don't make the Hall of Fame when they should make the Hall of Fame. Um, And then I uh, turned that into a a Venn diagram of all the overlapping reasons. And the reasons are like, uh, uh, you know, like if if you tend to be good at certain stats that are like less visible. Yeah. Like or you're you draw good at everything, but not really good at one thing. Right, that's a thing. If you're uh, overshadowed by uh, a similar type player in your same generation, like Tim Raines with Ricky Henderson, uh, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. If you uh, if you had a short peak, I think, or I mean, a short career but a high peak, I think that was one that doesn't do you favors. Like if you start late for some reason, or you you end early. Even though you might have the wars to do it, there's just a perception that your career is too short. Uh, if you play second base, that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all these uh, all these overlapped, and, and in the middle, there was Chase Utley. Chase Utley had all the the reasons that people don't get into the Hall of Fame, even though they should. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a I did there's a Bill James thing called the Keltner Keltner list, named after mm-hmm. Ken Keltner, where he asks 15 questions about players that identifies whether they should be Hall of Famers and why certain guys are not, even though they should be. But yeah, similar to what we were talking about. And so when I when I did this, this was probably 2011, and uh, Utley was, uh, you know, darn near the best player in baseball. Well, probably the second best player in baseball at the time. Just coming just at the very end of his run as probably the second best player in baseball behind Albert Pujols. Um, and since then, he has had uh, four good years of three-plus war each year, which is absolutely not nothing. Uh, and yet, um, you know, he's still probably not going to make the Hall of Fame. He's he's roughly Craig Biggio's career value by baseball reference, uh, and yet Biggio was a second-ballot Hall of Famer, very nearly a first-ballot Hall of Famer. And um, Utley probably won't be. My favorite, one of my, in fact, probably a top-seven fun fact, in, in my opinion, uh, in my life, is that uh, since they were both full-time players, uh, since Ryan Howard's debut, I think, Chase Hutley has never had a season with a lower war than Ryan Howard, 
and he has never had a season where he finished higher in MVP voting than Ryan Howard. Uh-huh. That's a good uh, one. Yeah, it is a good one. Uh, and so, anyway... Uh, Although it's Chase probably going to end this year, right? Uh, he will finish lower than Ryan Howard in war yeah. this year. Yeah. yeah, it will end. You're right. Um, anyway, Chase Utley, good player, great player. Uh, not likely to make the Hall of Fame. And I wondered, though, if he... Uh, if he did, I don't know exactly how to frame this, but uh, he's having such a bad year right now, like such a such a bad year. And so I wanted to know what the worst year that you could have as a Hall of Famer is, and still make the Hall of Fame, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, and so all I did is I just looked up, uh, I clicked Hall of Fame members as players and sorted by lowest war, and. The answer, uh, BGO is currently at minus 1.2 war by baseball reference. Uh, the lowest ever is Craig Biggio at minus 2.1, who in 2007, when he was chasing 3,000 hits, uh, hit 250, 285, 381 with like a minus 20-something defense and was at two wins worse than replacement. Lou Brock at age 39, Reg Jackson at age 37, Willie Keeler at age 35, Carlton Fisk at age 38, Ron Santo at age 34. Those are the only seasons currently worse or worse than Chase Utley's current season. Uh, and I one time looked at this actually for uh, for Fox Sports, for Jabo. Uh, I looked at the worst year at each age because mm-hmm. you, like, I wanted to know what the worst age 27 season was compared to the worst age 20 because like all these guys that I just named in almost all cases were like 38 or older, and you sort of expect to see a bad year at 38 or older. Utley's only 36, and um, I, I I will say that, so by baseball prospectuses war, warp, uh, he's at minus nine, minus nine, minus point nine warp, and the worst ever for a Hall of Famer at age 36 is minus point six warp by Jim Rice, and in fact, by warp, nobody, no Hall of Famer has ever had a worse season age 36 or younger than Chase Utley. And so here we have Chase Utley, who in his darkest moment is also, in a weird way, going to be robbed of the distinction of worst season ever by a Hall of Famer because he probably will get overlooked and not make the Hall of Fame. So even here, he can't even pursue horrible trivia probably because he's so underrated that so underrated that he can't even have the indignity of being at the top of one of these lists someday. Chase Utley having a bad year for no purpose. (laughs) So, okay. Sad, sad for Chase Utley, but, uh, good, good for him too. Yeah. All right. Play index coupon code BP. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Okay, this one comes from Jason. Ken Davidoff did a feature in the New York Post about the great Yankees flameout Ruben Rivera. At the end of the piece, Davidoff had a quote from Brian Cashman that I found intriguing. Quote, but I guarantee if you plop him into today's analytic world and you dissect that player and you go back in time with all of today's stuff, there would have been predicted failure. I guarantee it. Instead of people being shocked that he flamed out, how did this happen? He was the next Mickey Mantle. In today's world, that player wouldn't be packaged as the next Mickey Mantle. 
That player would be packaged as a lot of swing and miss, feasting on garbage pitching at the lower levels, and he would have had predictable trouble at the higher levels. I don't think there are going to be misses on players like that because the league as a whole has higher ground. It made me wonder, do you think there's any truth to that? Anyway, how would we even measure this? How many prospects with big numbers in the minors are heralded but then miss? And how could we measure whether that number has gone down in the analytics era? So his point isn't that we're so smart that we don't compare people to Mickey Mantle, just that <laughs> Ruben Rivera specifically yes, wouldn't have been. Yes, you can compare Mike Trout to Mickey Mantle because it works. But a uh, player like Ruben Rivera, you would not compare because you would and you, be aware of these things that we know are predictive of future success now. However, however, you can compare Byron Buxton to Mickey to, to Mike Trout and Willie Mays, right? Oh, I haven't heard Willie Mays, but I have heard Mike Trout, and so transitive property. And yeah, all the, that. the the famous one with Buxton, I think, was a, a Jason Parks quote that he got from someone, a scout or someone with a team who said that I think his ceiling is Mays and his floor is Tory Hunter. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That the famous one? <laughs> Would you say that's it's, like, it's how, the only how one I'm aware of. All right. You probably edited it. probably that. did. That's why it's famous for me. Uh, yeah. The great thing, probably everybody knows this, but the great thing about Ruben Rivera, the best part about Ruben Rivera, who, by the way, was never the number one overall prospect. He was number two and also number three and also number nine. But you know this about Ruben Rivera, that when they signed him, he said, hey, you should sign my cousin too. Uh-huh. Right. And his cousin was Mariano. Yeah. Um, and so, in fact, kind of worked. Yeah. I'm looking uh, up Ruben Rivera's stats to see so, what I would try to th- what I would think of a player who did well, what he is doing or is doing what he did. Yeah, I mean if you're just scouting the stat line, it wouldn't be that impressive. Like he's his age 20 season, he hit 288, 372, 573. And that but that's an A ball. That's in the Sally. Mike mm. Trout was winning was winning the well, not winning, but should have won the MVP award when he was 20. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. In the majors. I mean, Rivera was never that far ahead. I mean, Rivera was really like one year ahead of schedule, maybe, mm-hmm. as far as the promotion schedule. And he pro- was striking out 30% or almost 30% of the time, which was way more then than it is now. Was he? It doesn't look like he is. Uh, wait, am I looking? Maybe I'm looking at his, his major more league like, stats. <laughs> yeah, it's more like 26 27%. Yeah, okay. Which is actually not bad for a minor league. In 1994 or whatever? Okay. In probably pretty bad. Yeah. In 1994, it probably was pretty bad. All right, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, he he wasn't... Look, I mean, there. I see a lot of good minor league lines in my line of work. And <laughs> this is fine. He's uh-huh. fine. Yeah. It's not... Like, the, the, the tools would have had to be... It must have been incredible. Yeah, so let's see. So in the Sally League, 1994, he was 20, so his age relative to the level was minus 1.3. So yeah, he was about a a year younger than the average player at that level. And then the next year, or later that year, he was in high A, and he was about two years younger. And then I guess the next year he was in double A, and he was three years younger. So... I mean, so Mike Trout had almost the same line in a ball okay uh rivera had actually it was even better but rivera had a 944 ops in a ball and trout had a 970 79 ops in a ball and trout was two years younger Mm -hmm. 
And then Trout was better in high A, again, two years younger. And then Trout was better in double A, again, two years younger. Uh, so, and we, it's not, we, Rivera wasn't a huge, he wasn't a huge signing, I don't think. Like, I think he was like a $10,000 bonus or something like that. It, like, there, there were more hyped, lots more hyped international signings, even back then. So, mm-hmm. the, pretty much, I would guess that the Mickey Mantle stuff was probably coming all from what he was doing stateside at mm-hmm. age 19, 20, 21. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, not that, it's not that great. It's good. He's a good prospect. Yeah. But, and this is, was he playing, he was, he was playing center field, at least. Yeah, and he, he also had the, the negative so, trajectory that you proposed might be a, a bad indicator for prospects and that Rob Arthur's research seemed to confirm that it was. Well, his first appearance on a Baseball America list, he was at 76, and then he went from 76 to 2, which is a gigantic... So how did he go from... So before 1994, he was number 76. Yeah, in and then he has the 1994 season, which... In which he, he went 33 homers, 48 steals. I would okay. bet 90% of this came from those two numbers. 33 homers, 48. Like if, I bet if he had 29 homers... Yeah. And 48 he, steals, it wouldn't have been as good. Yeah, and he went from 76 to 2. Wow. He, I mean, I'm sure it was backed up by positive scouting reports also, but still, 2. And then he went 3, 9, and 40, which is probably a bad thing. But then again, by the time he was 40, people probably weren't comparing him to Mickey Mantle. So, But generally, you would think Cashman is right, right? He should be right. Theoretically, I mean, there's been... So many studies done about the importance of your age relative to the level and what stats are predictive for minor leaguers. And there's so much more information on what guys are throwing and what guys are hitting. So it seems almost impossible that prospect rankings or projections wouldn't have improved over the last 20 years. I don't know that that's convincingly been demonstrated. I've seen various studies that look at success rates of Baseball America lists over the years, and from what I recall, there was some improvement relative to the very earliest lists, but it wasn't massive. It wasn't as big as you'd probably think it would be based on how much more is known now. But I would guess that, and part of it is that you can't see what the success rates were for the last several years because those prospects didn't didn't make it yet or not make it. So I would guess that once we get a little more perspective we'll be able to see a noticeable difference you know what's a fun minor league uh uh career to look at what gary sheffield all right i'll take a look all right. he has a fun entire career to look at what yeah. is fun about his minor league career oh it's just that he, when he was 17 he was in the pioneer league and he had a 1052 ops <laughs> when he was 17 yeah. He was in the Cal League when he was 18, and he was good. He was in AA at 19, and he was insane. It's hard to imagine Gary Sheffield he actually, ever not hitting, which I guess right. he never he never did not hit. As a 19-year-old in AAA, he hit 344, 407, 561. Hmm. Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, okay. All right. And also, yeah, for, when in the Cal League... When he was again, when he was eighteen, he had forty-eight strikeouts and eighty-one walks in a full season. <laughs> right. 
Remember in our recent podcast where we were talking about the daylight play and talking about why it was called the daylight play? Yeah. We got an email from a listener named Devin. Subject line, daylight play. Yeah. Text of the email. Call me yeah. if you want call an explanation. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Followed by phone number. Yeah. Did you, did you call Devin? Thought about it. It's very <laughs> suspicious. We should have called Devin live on the show. Do it. Yeah? Yeah, why not? Okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> when he was seven, Ben, when he was 17, playing against mostly, you know, college graduates and 20-year-old Dominicans, he had 14 strikeouts and 20 walks in 253 plate appearances. He was striking out every, like, 14 at-bats. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I love Gary Sheffield. Every 16 at-bats. Every well, every sixteen at bats, every like seventeen or eighteen plate appearances. As a seventeen-year-old. All right, I'm calling Devin, possibly for an explanation of the daylight play, possibly for some sort of identity theft. We'll find. We'll find out. Right. All right, here we go. Hello. Hey, Devin. This is Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller calling Hi. for an explanation of the daylight play. Okay. Um, <laughs> whenever I see a uh, Palmdale area code, I assume that it's Skype, right? So are you on Skype right now? Yes. Okay, so the daylight play is essentially when the runner is on second base and there's a gap between the runner on second base and the shortstop. The pitcher sees the daylight when he looks back over, back over, and then once the pitcher faces back toward home plate, he takes off toward third base. The shortstop takes off third base to run a bunch of play. So, in my idea of the daylight play, I think of it as a way to cover a sacrifice bunt on third base, where the third baseman can then go cover the the bunt that is intentionally given towards the third base line um, when a batter sacrifices with a runner on first and second. Wait a minute. That's that no, you're talking about the you're talking about the rotation play. In my mind, I always think that as that's the daylight play because the pitcher goes home once he sees daylight in between the runner on second base and the shortstop, and that's the daylight. Interesting. And... So I guess I've heard it as as the daylight play and the wheel play. So I, I've heard it have multiple names. Yeah. Okay. So hang on, because I, I've I've I don't think I've ever heard the wheel play. Described as the daylight play, and okay. now I'm checking this. Hang on, this might be you. Might be you. Might be right. Hang on, daylight. So maybe, I do see. Maybe. Wait, if the doesn't move back to the Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I see this. So you can also, now that I think about it more, I guess you could think of it as once if there's a runner on second base and the shortstop goes, takes a step towards third base, and the pitcher sees daylight in between the shortstop and the runner on second base. Once he sees that daylight, looks towards home, the shortstop breaks towards second base, and then the pitcher picks to second base. That could be the daylight. That's what we decided the daylight. Did you listen to our show? Yes. And I think I may have gotten confused in between the time you, the two of you talked about it on your show and right now. So I think that may be um, what it is. or That's more definitively what I think it is, is when the shortstop takes a step towards third. The pitcher sees the daylight in between the runner on second and the shortstop. He looks towards home to put the runner on second at ease. 
and once he looks home, the shortstop breaks towards second base. Yeah. So our so, our explanation of the daylight play gave you completely the wrong idea of what the daylight play is. <laughs> In other words, good job by pretty us. Pretty much, but I think that doesn't it seem like this second explanation would make more sense, or is that the explanation the two of you arrived at? I think that it's I I I feel like it's what we said. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Was there a reason in particular that I guess the two of you um, wanted a more definitive answer around it? We were more curious, curiosity. We were curious what you were gonna do. <laughs> we we were wondering why you asked us to call. It was instead a very, of, was, instead of just saying what the daylight play was. <laughs> I think at the, the time, first... I think I thought it'd be easier just to have the two of you call me instead of, I guess, trying to write that out. But Yeah. Pro- As it turns out, I am not sure you were right. Because <laughs> nobody calls anybody anymore. It's 2015. But the other day I saw a kid on the phone. Like, I, like he was at, waiting at a bus stop and he was talking on his phone and I just stared at him with nostalgia because there was a a, a teenager talking on a phone as opposed to <laughs> staring at a phone. And I just thought, this is what America used to be. Teenagers talking mm-hmm. phones and ignoring everybody around them. But we've lost that. Mm-hmm. You know, now now it's, it's... With your help, we've brought it back. We have. It, it was nice to talk to you. We were... It was a... The terseness of the email um, was... There was, there did feel like there might be a reverse mortgage involved. It, it felt a little bit like a hostage situation, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You were gonna make well, some demands. <laughs> uh, well, I hope I was able to provide a little bit more clarity, and I don't know. I mean, I guess it's nice to talk to people more. And I guess, like you, I, I notice um, the reverse when I see, I guess, people particularly at lunch, and it's a group of small people and all of them are on their phones. So I think that's the time when that, like, becomes cognizant for me. All right. Well, thank you, Devin. <laughs> all, right. all right. Have a good day to the both of you. You too. All right. So well, that's that, the daylight play. There was, there was no risk, as far as I know, unless he was somehow hacking us while we were talking to him. We came through that call okay. Yeah. All right. So that is it for today and this week, which we are ending on a multiple of five. And you can email us questions for next week at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. You can rate, review, subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can join the Facebook group on facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. We hope you have a nice weekend and we'll be back on Monday.